Rio de Janeiro. With a big man. G'day, Kaya, assalamu alaikum, and welcome to Frio de Janeiro. My name is Abid Iman, and this show is all about engaging conversations with inspirational personalities and public figures to help us understand people, culture, and the world. On this episode, we are joined by CEO of Leadership WA, Dominique McCoy. She is the epitome of inspirational leadership having a real impact across our state. I've been fortunate enough to be part of their Rising Leaders program recently, and Dom has come to speak to us a number of times. A lot of us have been in awe of her storytelling skills and pearls of wisdom, and to get the chance to have her on the show and deep dive on a few leadership topics has been really cool. What I also love about Dom's story is that her career has spanned so many interesting fields. All in all, this was a really insightful chat, and there's plenty of advice for the leader in all of us. Thank you to the team at Leadership WA and the alumni friends who have inspired a great journey through this organization. Find out more about the show on friodegenero.com. Please enjoy. Dominic McCoy. Thank you so much for joining me on Frio de Janeiro. Um, I usually don't heap praise on guests right at the beginning, but I just wanted to say I'm super excited that you could join me and, and I know it's your podcast debut. You're someone who has benefited so many people and supported so many people here in Western Australia and beyond, including myself. You're a leader amongst leaders, so it's just an honour that you could join me. Well, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I'm always an embracer of new experiences, so this is my first ever podcast. So I'm a little bit excited and I'm a little bit scared, but I think that's always a great way to start any kind of new adventure. So I'm looking <laughs> forward to, to what we're going to chat about today. Yeah, there's some really good topics, uh, especially around leadership in your career, which is so interesting and uh, a multitude of experiences that you've had. But I'd really love to um, wind it back a little bit and ask you about where you grew up and those early memories in your journey. Great. Oh, gosh. What? Winding it back. It's a few years to wind back nowadays. Um, so, look, I, um, I, I, I grew up in Tasmania, actually, uh, but kind of an interesting background. My mum, my mum's French and my dad's English. Uh, they decided back in the 60s to move somewhere else from England for a couple of years and then go back. And then they moved to Tasmania and they – they stayed for about 40 years. Uh, they loved it so much. So I grew up in Tasmania and um, my dad was a doctor and my mum was a nurse. And, you know, when I think back, I think having people like that uh, in health and in service really embedded in me from a very, very early age um, the importance of care and care for others because it was everywhere uh you know, every every part of the household was it. My dad was an old school GP, so uh, the patients had his home phone number when we used to have a landline, um, and patients would call up all hours of the day and night and the weekend, and because they needed to see their doctor, and he would pack up his little black bag um, and go off and and do a house call, um, and just watching that and being surrounded like that, I think embedded in me a, a really strong sense of taking responsibility for for caring for others. So that was kind of the, the life philosophy. Uh, but, you know, growing up in Tasmania was fantastic. I was in Launceston up north and, you know, summers were spent, you know, you know, on the beach, going to the mountains. So, um, you know, I would get into everything. My mum tells me I was a very adventurous child. So I would be the one exploring, fishing, climbing trees, getting into rock pools, probably generally getting into trouble. Um, and I think the sense of adventure has has really continued through my life. Um, and I'm always but just keep exploring and keep trying new things. So um, that was, yeah, I, I feel very blessed at my start in life. And I realise as I've gone on, there are many other people who don't have the same start. So I'm very, very appreciative uh, of, I suppose, my privilege uh, and the experiences I had that shaped me as a young person to who I am today. But it makes me value the experiences of others as well. Tasmania sure sounds beautiful. Do you often get the chance to head back and, and have a look? Yeah, I'll try and go back every sort of four or five years. Uh, my parents have retired back to Europe. They packed everything up about 20 years and went back. But 
I've still got lots of good, you know, good friends there uh, and, and old schoolmates, which I still keep in contact, uh, let's say, 30 or more years down the track. Um, and so it is nice to get back to there. And, and, and Tasmania is you know, a great place for uh, a whole range of activities and it was sport and, and art. And as I was growing up as well, um, I got into also, I got into sports. So I did, you know, I did softball and soccer and athletics, et cetera, and I really started to get my sense of enjoying working in a team and what team sport is all about. But then on the flip side, uh, I studied classical guitar for 10 years. It was kind of almost going to be my career pathway. So sport, uh, music, I got into languages. Um, and so uh, as I think, I think, I think I like to have a taste of everything along the way. And, and it's always interesting when you look back over your shoulder and think about the things that have shaped you. So sport has always been a big part of my life. Uh, you know, for health and fitness, but also connecting with other people and seeing the achievements you can get. But then art and music and creativity is also uh, another part as well. I've got to work out a clever way to maybe combine the two. I'm not sure how to do that yet. That's the uh, the sweet spot right there, Dom. Um, but you've given me quite a bit to jump off with there. And I love to actually go on the sports uh, side of things. And my research should suggest that you have been a state team member for WA of dragon boating. Is this correct? Oh, I love it. Oh, look, dragon, bo- dragon boating is a fantastic sport. And it's funny, the reason why I got into it is um, I moved to Perth here about mm, 23 years ago, uh, and a great way to meet people is through sport. Um, and I played a lot of volleyball, actually. I played a lot of indoor volleyball and beach volleyball and state series doing that many years ago. And then, unfortunately, as has happened, I did my knee. So I had a uh, major triple T reconstruction with a lateral release, anything that you could do to the knee, I I somehow managed to do it. Um, So after surgery and a a lot of um, rehab, which is always the fun part, not. um, The challenge is with a, a knee injury, I couldn't do a lot of running or jumping anymore. And when you think about most team sports, it involves running and jumping, right, unless it's like relay swimming and I wasn't a swimmer. Um, and then anyway, one day at work, this guy came in and he had his long, bizarre-looking half paddle, half canoe all over his shoulders. I was like, what's that? He said, this is a dragon boat paddle. Give it a go. Uh, and so 15 years later, I'm still dragon boating. So the beauty about dragon boating is um, you, if you're not familiar with it, you have It's a very, very long boat. Think about a really long canoe. You have 20 people in that boat sitting two by two, so 10 seats, two by two, and you have to get that whole team working together. Um, Now, the good thing for me is it was low impact, so it didn't matter that my knee didn't work because it was still high level of physical exertion. It was working together as a team. It was on the water that was even better. So I started dragon boating um, and, and paddling, and then I moved into the role of sweep, which is standing at the back of the boat and steering and, and, and yelling at people but enthusiastically. So I did that for quite a few years. And so I've um, we've taken a team overseas and yeah, I'm very, very proudly I'm a uh, bronze medalist for Western Australia uh, in the Australian National Jaguar Boating Championships. So it's great as a sport. It is highly accessible. Anyone can jump in a boat and, and paddle. I have taken out uh, – completely blind paddlers, paddlers with cerebral palsy, um, 88-year-olds I've taken out and paddles, 12-year-olds I've taken out and paddled. So it's an absolutely marvellous sport that uh, is very, very inclusive, uh, but you can take it up to the highest level. Some of my friends have competed for Australia. So uh, it's a good, good way to get the energy out. What are some of those nuances between dragon boating and uh, rowing? Rowing, I guess, is a bit more well-known in Olympic sport. Um, is it that dual uh, or the, the number of people in the boat that is the difference or is there more to it that I'm not um, getting into? I think the first important distinction is in dragon boating, we go forwards, whereas the rowers go backwards. So we're, we're ah, always looking ahead. Okay. Um, look, I think the thing is you think about the concept of getting 20 people to work in unison. So in a, a, a rowing eight, it's eight people plus, plus, plus maybe the cocks, you know, controlling. So you are more than doubling that. So with Dragon Burning, you have to have 20 people working in complete unison. And the beauty of it, and it's great from a teamwork and even a leadership perspective, is you need those people to be to listen to the, the sweep who's making the calls. There's usually a drummer at the front of the boat who's, who's beating the rhythm and setting the direction. 
every single bench in that boat, whether it right at the front or right at the back, is going to contribute to the success of the boat. So it doesn't matter if you're the strongest paddler or the weakest paddler, you're only as strong as that 20 working together. And the wonderful thing is, again, you think about getting 20 people to do exactly the same thing at exactly the same time, with the same rhythm, with the same strength, with the same effort, and to be mindful of who's sitting next to you, who's in front, who's behind, and what the calls are. Um, So I think that's what makes it quite unique because if you have everybody paddling at different speeds and at different rates, your paddles are going to clash, the boat starts rocking, and it's not very effective. And I always, when I take groups out, I always give the analogy, I could have a team of tiny little gymnasts and a team of footy players and if the footy players are all doing their own thing in different timing and the gymnasts are working together in perfect time, the gymnasts will win because it's about awareness of the people around you to get to that end goal and to work together. So uh, it's, it's a very philosophical sport um, as well as fast and furious as well. When you get eight boats all lined up next to each other about five metres apart, you've got drums banging, you've got a heck of a lot of noise, uh, it's, it's a great amount of energy and, and anyone can pick it up and do it. That's the joy of it. Well, you've changed the way that I will look at dragon boating or next time I drive past the Double Yerrigan and see a vessel on there, a rowing boat, I'll think about leadership and, and those lessons that will, are being learned. I'll, I'll take you out one day. How about that? Then you can experience it for real. That'll be amazing, yeah. And, and from a collective physical pursuit, I want to switch it to an individual one, which is a bit more recent for you, which was the the ride for youth uh, on the bike. Uh I saw how much you raised for a really important cause, mental health. Um, and I just want to know about that journey for you, uh, why you took it on board and, and the, the, the discipline that it took for you to, to prepare for that ride as well. Yeah, thank you. Look, that, that was an amazing experience. So in 2022, um, I did the Hawaiian Ride for Youth. And so it, it, it's a, it's a, a ride that's been going for 20 years. It was actually the 20th anniversary. The purpose of the ride uh, is to primarily is to raise money for Youth Focus, which supports young people with mental health um, support. Uh, so it's suicide prevention around mental health and support, and particularly in the regions. And so it was a fun, you know, you see lots of these different fundraising events all the time. And, and, and um, you know, I'm, I'm blessed in my role. People say, oh, can you do this one? Can you do that one? And I always said no. And then a couple of people said, why don't you do this ride for youth? Um, I've been a little bit of a cyclist, but when I say cyclist, it would be, you know, 20Ks from home to Cottesloe, you know, have a cappuccino by the beach and then ride back. And that was about the extent of my cycling. And they said, well, this thing, this is 700 kilometres from Albany to Perth. And along the way, so you might ride for 100Ks um, and then stop and on to the next town. But then what you would do is... Along the way, uh, the peloton, the groups of cyclists, we stop at a school and somebody would get up and talk about mental health in front of school kids. And it's showing, I suppose, when you've got adults talking about mental health challenges and the support and it's okay to ask for help. Um, and so it's about raising awareness, raising some money, raising awareness. Um, and, you know, and having had family who have suffered from mental health, and I think all of us have been touched in one, one way or another, I went, you know what, this is actually a cause which resonates with me and I felt that I'm... Um, that was something where I could maybe raise a few dollars um, and, and contribute that way. So that was great, sort of looking outwardly, looking inwardly for me. Gosh, um, it was six months' worth of training. I was training four or five times a week, getting up at 4.30 in the morning in the pitch black and going and doing a 40, 45K intensive ride uh, several, times, several times a week. Saturdays we'd do a 90K ride, then a 100K ride, then a 150K ride. And I tell you what, it was amazing. Um, uh, I did things that I never thought I could do. I climbed hills up Welshpool Road, up to Kalamunda, my first 50K ride, my first 100K ride, my first 150K ride. And it was a really fantastic experience for me because personally, uh, seeing how I could push myself, push my body and push my mind, uh, it was sometimes it was very zen because it's just you and the bike. Uh, other times we get frustrated and I really felt I wanted to throw my bike out of the pram and just give up and that's it. Uh, but what was wonderful, there was a whole stack of people around me who had done it before, five years, five rides, 10 rides, they've done it 20 times, 
who said, no, back yourself, uh, believe in yourself. You do the training, you make the commitment, you can do it. And so I went through that, had a couple of seeds of doubt from time to time, which we all do. But at the end of the day, I went, I've signed up for this. I made a commitment and I've asked people to give me money. To, to get, I think I raised over you know sixteen seventeen thousand dollars that would go into youth focus, and I went well I can't I can't quit for me and I can't quit for everyone else so it was great so last year on the bus down to Albany and we rode all the way back from Albany to Perth seven hundred k's and I loved every minute of it um, I think the beauty of doing something like that it's it, yeah on the bike you're on your own but with this sort of ride you're as part of a peloton. So the pelotons are the groups of cyclists that you see. And that whole peloton, it's like a little, it's like a team. It's like a little society. You've got your stronger riders, your weaker riders, but you all need to work together because it doesn't, if one half of the peloton gets there half an hour before the rest, you're not achieving what you are supposed to achieve. So uh, some good life philosophies, I think. And I found some really interesting parallels between being in a dragon boat as a team and understanding everybody in the team and then being in a in a, a peloton of 40 or 50 people and, and realising you've got all these different strengths, weaknesses, uh, personalities, mindsets, and how do you bring them all uh, together. Uh, it was a great ride. I'd highly recommend it to anyone who would who would want to want to do it. Get yourself a good bike. Get yourself the good kit. That is really important because how you look is just as important as your performance, as you know, for cyclists. Um, but an amazing um, uh, physical and mental challenge, and I, I really, really cherish that as an experience. Taught me a lot about myself more than I ever thought I, I knew. Thanks, Dom. Yeah, we'll put the links in the show notes so people can find out more about how to get involved. Uh, I really want to switch up down to more intellectual pursuits and your career itself, which is incredible. And uh, I want to get started with your first job. And let me know if I'm wrong. I'll sack my uh, research and development department. But uh, it's the Australian Institute of Sports in in the marketing manager role. Um, As someone who uh, is passionate about sport myself, but also you as well. Um, I want to know how that was for you as a start in your career going over to Canberra. Oh, yeah, look, that that was great. I mean, for someone who loves their sport, my first job out of university was at the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra. Um, so uh, education-wise, I'd done a, I'd done a couple of quals. So I did a Bachelor of Arts um, uh, triple major in French, German and English, a bit of Russian thrown in. But then I realised I actually really enjoyed engaging with people and making things happen and events. So I did a postgrad in marketing and then, yeah, landed my first job at the AIS in Canberra. And that was that was an amazing experience, um, not only because of what I learned from a technical perspective about marketing. So the marketing there was getting people to come and visit the AIS. We had an interactive sports um, exhibition there. Uh, you know, conferences and things like that and to, to get people to use the facilities and, and to generate revenue. Um, but also at the same time, just being surrounded by all the athletes. So, uh, you know, uh, this will date me, but when I was there, it was a lead up to the 1996 uh, Atlanta Olympics campaign. And, you know, so we had those were the days of Michael Klim, swimmer, Patria Thomas, uh, the water polo team uh, was doing amazing thing. The soccer team, uh, the gymnast program was there. And so you had this amazingly diverse range of athletes um, in various stages of their their career or their campaign. Um, you know, because for some um, athletes, you know, a campaign to get the Olympics, it might be an eight-year campaign or a six-year campaign to actually say, I'm going to go to... Uh, 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 Atlanta or Sydney or Tokyo, whatever it is. So watching the the range of the dedication uh, and the focus and the support that was around those athletes was an amazing place to be. Um, But spending time, I I learned about discipline, which was great to observe, uh, but I also learned about how you recover from failure or disappointment because for some of those athletes, you know, they may have been training for four years for Olympics and then, you know, six weeks out they do their ACL and that's the whole thing gone. So how do you how do you pick yourself up from that? How do you say, well, you know, everything I've been working to for, for this one moment in time and, it was again, it was good to see, you know, where people had that sense of resilience. Uh, we talk about resilience a lot more today than we probably would have 30 years ago but, um, you know, resilience and picking yourself up and then how the people around you can make a difference. So 
Um, yeah, it was an absolutely fascinating time. And just I just can just remember, you know, sitting there in the, the theatre there at the AIS watching watching the Olympics live on, on TV and, and cheering and there were people that you knew uh, and, and that great sense of camaraderie and spirit. So it, it was a pretty good way to start my, my, my working career, I've got, to, I've got to say. And maybe hanging out with some of those gymnasts taught you about um, pivoting because it's a word that we use a lot now. Um, and I know you, you like to uh, put a little twist on it and sometimes call it twirling, but uh, your career took so many interesting um twists and turns in terms of where you took it and uh, that includes state federal government you've been on boards uh, i just want to know about uh, whether that was deliberate to try different fields or was it something that just naturally happened yeah okay well look the, when, when people ask me oh you know what's what's your career pathway what's it been i say oh teachable i've worked in elite sport science zoos food cemeteries, the Department of Premier and Cabinet, uh, and now in not-for-profit space in leadership. So people listen to that and go, oh, my God, what, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Um, and so it's, it's been, a, you know, it's been a, a fantastic sort of a careering career as I've, I've gone from one thing to another. Was it by design or, or by chance? I think it's a little bit of both. What I probably have learnt over the years is to understand and value what my skills were what my skills, uh, what my experiences were, and I call that my toolkit. So my toolkit might be I know how to build relationships with people, I know how to write policy, I can write marketing plans, I can, you know, and as you go through your career, you build more and more skills that you put in your toolkit. So it was when I started to realise, well, I've got all these sort of skills um, and I can take them anywhere. So when I was in I was in Canberra, I was working for the National Science and Technology Centre, which is a bit like SciTech here, hands-on interactive science, lots of fun. And then I knew I wanted to go somewhere else. I, I wanted to go to Perth for some reason, you know, the more beaches, more, more bit, bit warmer than Canberra. And there was a job going at Perth Zoo. And one of the criteria was, oh, you know, desirable that you've worked in a zoo or conservation agency. And went, well, not many people have done that, but what I realised, I'd, I'd worked in a place, the National Science Technology Centre, where it was about communicating about that science is fun and relevant for anyone and everyone and marketing activities. So the same thing. So I said, I can pick up my skills in doing that and I can transfer that into a zoo environment. And then further down the track, when I moved to the Metropolitan Cemeteries Board, I never worked in a cemetery before. I think I'd been to one funeral, fortunately, in my life. But I looked at what they were after and, you know, they needed skills in engaging with people, stakeholder, you know, stakeholder engagement, legislation, customer service, revenue generation. So I went, I don't know anything about cemeteries, but I can learn that. I can learn that technical side. But what I could take with me is all of that that toolkit of skills and take it with me. So that's sort of the technical side. I worked out what my, my, my technical skills were and it sort of gave me a bit of confidence to move to completely new topic areas, elite sports, science, zoos, food, cemeteries. None of those things are really related when you think about it. But the skills that I took with me were, and I kept building each time. I think the other thing I did was when I was looking at where my next steps would be, I would always say, well, does it align with me, my purpose, my values? Do I believe in it? Do I feel that working for that place will allow me to shine, do a bit of good, impact other people? Will I feel comfortable going to work every day? And I think that's a question that's really important for anyone to ask themselves or ask each other. Um, you know, life is short, life is full. We, you know, most of us are working five days a week or more or less. But, you know, and I think that's a lot of your life at work. You might as well do something that you really enjoy and that really resonates with you. So, you know, for me, one of my one of my little life philosophies is you either take opportunities or you make them. Okay, so sometimes taking the opportunities is, oh, you you see the job and you go, oh, maybe I'll give that a go. Or, um, you know, somebody says, hey, have you thought about this? And you go, yep, okay, I say yes a lot. Um, so that's the taking the opportunities. The making the opportunities might be, you can see something I think I'm interested in. Just going to call up the CEO or somebody there and say, "Hey, can I buy you a coffee and pick your brands? I'm interested in hearing about it." And you never know 
where that conversation may lead you. And it may lead you to go, mm, no, that's not for me. Or it may lead you to think, hang on, maybe this is a pathway that I could follow. So, you know, I think maybe maybe a combination, a bit of design, a bit of chance. But I think for me, if I look back, what has helped me have just a really interesting career and every role I've just enjoyed and relished, it was something that I believed in um, and I was passionate about. I felt I was making a difference and I felt that the skills that I had I could I could contribute to. I hope that makes sense. Oh, it makes absolute wonderful sense. And the role at the Perth Zoo uh, sounds like one that is a dream role for so many people uh, because of the the the, the amazing um, values and philosophy that they have as well. What was that like for yourself? Oh gosh, that that was that was an amazing job. So. I mean, even just even arriving, I, I flew in from Canberra to move to Perth. I knew two people. Uh, they were both uh, Olympian hockey roos who, who very rudely took off to win gold at, in, in Sydney at the Olympics. I arrived in August and they left shortly afterwards to go and win gold, a bit selfish. I was by myself, um, knew no one in Perth. Uh, but the cool part is I spent the first, I think it was the first three months living in the zoo. Um, there was accommodation there, so they said, "Oh, look, you can live in the zoo for the first three months." And that was that was brilliant. Talk about immersing yourself. So I lived in the zoo. So, oh, can you imagine all the sights, sounds, smells uh, of living in a zoo? Uh, was was brilliant. So that was a great kickoff start. But look, the, the, the wonderful thing about working in a zoo. Sorry, where do you even live in a zoo? Where is the quarters for you oh, to that, stay? That, they have, there's a few houses on site. I mean, the zoo's been there for well over 100 years, so the old sort of the curators would live on site. There's still a few houses there. Um, so that was handy for me just to find my way around Perth uh, and until I could, you know, find a, find a place to, to live in. But look, the, the wonderful thing about working uh, at Perth Zoo, and it really, really struck me there, and that was started one of my little aha moments, it's about working with passionate people. You know, you're working with zookeepers whose sole purpose is how can we stop this species coming extinct? How can we uh, educate the general community about the value and importance of conservation? And it doesn't matter if it's a, a, a lion or a tiger or a, a tiny little, you know, three-centimetre long western swamp tortoise that's highly endangered. So working with people who really believe in what they do and why they do it and then I was in a marketing role there. So the opportunity to sort of harness that passion, understand it, which is important, harness that, and then turn it into, I suppose, campaigns and activities which would draw the general public in to come and walk through those doors and look around and and understand the wonder of science and conservation and, and environment and nature and, and to think about their footprint. What privileged uh, a position what a privileged role to be in so connecting you know what would happen behind the scenes in the zoo with you know joe public coming in who might never have thought about it and and also for particularly for perth zoo you know being part of a zoo that was very progressive moving away from having animals in small cages where yeah you could always see them but what a life for the animals so having more natural exhibits having uh uh you know physical and mental stimulation for the animals, what they would call behavioural enrichment. Um, the interesting thing about Zermid is ultimately you don't want you want to work so zoos are not needed. That's your your goal is to make yourself as a zoo almost extinct, I think, because wouldn't we want to be in a world where animals are out in the wild doing their thing, we can appreciate them and we don't actually need a zoo uh, to preserve species or to educate, unfortunately. You know, that's that's the way the world has gone. And I had some amazing experiences. I had some everything from, you know, everyone would remember, remember Tricia the elephant, you know, absolute icon of, of Western Australia, you know, being up close with her and, and, and having, you know, her running her trunk over my arm and sniffing and checking me out and having that moment. And then I can remember another time um, going into the, the reptile nursery and, and almost being moved to tears because I was watching a little baby woma python emerging from an egg, you know, this this this, this new life coming. So uh, it, it was an absolutely amazing experience working at the zoo. But what it did, it taught me a few things about, you know, working with passionate people, 
and also about you know bringing people together. You had the the inside staff, the administration, the marketing team, and they had the, the you know the outside staff who were the keepers and the grounds people, and then bringing them together and saying, hey, we're actually all here for the same purpose. So I really love for me kind of worked out one of my my passions and my superpowers is trying to bring people together uh, for the same purpose. So it was a very hard place to leave because there was some incredible and and magic moments. And for me, if I played a role in that one person on one day walked out of those zoo gates and changed the way that they moved in the world for the better, that was a happy day for me. Thank you, Dom. That's beautiful. And one of the other roles I just wanted to capture was the the role at the cemetery. And you mentioned your toolkit, and I imagine that you needed to delve upon empathy and connecting with people in a different way. How was that for you? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, look, it's it's always interesting when you say that you work in a cemetery. Everybody kind of goes, oh, and takes two or three steps backwards because uh, I think it's weird. Uh, and then they'll start creeping back and, and starting asking you all these you know, odd, odd urban myth questions. But look, when look at this, when, when that job at the cemeteries board came up and it was the director of client services, which always gives everyone a bit of a laugh. Um, but I looked at it and the first thing I did was, well, it actually aligns with my toolkit. It was stakeholder engagement. It was policy. It was revenue generation. It was customer service. It was leading a team. Uh, it was understanding the needs and, of a community and, um, and and finding a way to meet those needs. So I fitted in with my toolkit, but it also fitted in with my, I don't know, my sense of purpose and values of, of contributing. You think about a funeral, right? Or and working in a cemetery, and I would say this to our team members and our staff. I said, "You are in a pr- privileged and." Uh, position and a position of honour that you get to impact upon people on one of the most significant days of their life. So you think about it, um, birth of a child, getting married or saying farewell to someone. So in a place like the cemetery, and we had Fremantle, Pinaroo, Midland, Guildford, Rockingham, um, Karakata Cemetery, so about 80% of all the funerals in the state. And I really believe when I was talking to our team, I said, it doesn't matter if you're the accountant or the CEO or a grave digger, or a gardener, or you operate the crematorium, every single one of us has this opportunity to impact positively on people on one of the most toughest days of their life. And not only on that day, but we have a relationship with them and their families for the next generation, next 25 years, 50 years, because people will come back and visit. And so it really sort of aligned with my sense of, uh, wow, you can, you can have an impact upon people. Uh, I learned a lot about decision-making because I'd make a decision today and I'd have to think, what are people going to think about this in 25 years' time or in 50 years' time? So it taught me a lot about thinking on broad horizons. But I also I spent some amazing time with uh, uh, different community groups across WA. So I would spend time with Aboriginal leaders trying to, you know, understanding what was important from a cultural uh, perspective. I would spend sit around the table with you know a dozen um, uh, imams from the Muslim community and, and saying, well, what is important to you from a religious perspective? How do we balance that out with contemporary op- occupational health and safety legislation? How can we create a safe space for you and your families and your mourners, but also uh, how can we create a safe space for uh, employees as we're, we're, you know, we're digging graves and, and commemorating people. So there was this really fascinating mix of, it, of legislation uh, and, and the policies that go around that, but you're also dealing with people and their hearts and their minds and their emotion and grief. So I reflect back on my time working in the cemeteries board and it really, I think it, I hope it taught me to listen uh, there's a great phrase about how you should always listen to understand, not to reply. Um, so listening to understand uh, and ask more questions and ask more questions and ask them and listen to them respectfully with a view to you know trying trying to find some common ground. Uh, and, and as I said, you're looking after people on one of the most significant days of their lives. So you know it taught me a lot about trying you know doing the right thing. Um, and then, but trying to balance that within the frameworks that you have to work, and like that can be challenging for a lot of people. You know, 
the policy says no or the computer says this or the legislation says that and and those things are very very important but when you add um human nature and grief and emotion and passion and love on top of that um there's no handbook that tells you how to do all those sort of things so i suppose from a leadership perspective and learning perspective it's uh learn to pull together all the different pieces of the puzzle and the story and then and then try as best that you can with hand on heart to navigate your way through it so did immersing yourself in in that area which was around loss of life and grieving give you mm. any lessons that you took around how we spend our time in this world this limited time in this world yeah oh look i, I think there's lots of life lessons I draw life lessons from all sorts of places, I suppose, whether it was working at the zoo or whether it was, you know, at the cemeteries board or wherever else I've been. But, look, I think it's, it's um, you you know, you only get one life. Uh, you know, make the most of it. Make the most of every opportunity um, and, and relish it. Uh, I think that's something probably I've learnt. Um, take the time to appreciate yourself uh, and those around you. And it doesn't mean that you have to do every single thing that comes across the way. You don't have to do, you don't have to operate at 100 miles an hour because maybe operating at 10 miles an hour is perfect for you. And I think that's a fascinating thing to do. But I think um, just appreciation and gratitude uh, is something I think I've, I've learned over the years, appreciating uh, my life, uh, the people around me, the people that perhaps that I can impact. Um, you know, people say, oh, wasn't it a bit sad and depressing to work in a cemetery? And it wasn't because um, what that team, the team did at the cemetery and all the different cemetery sites is they created an environment that allowed people to celebrate a life, uh, uh, commemorate a life, you know, and we'll watch people walking out after they've had a funeral service and there was there would have been smiles. There would, yes, there would be tears, but there'd be smiles, there'd be laughter, there'd be solace, there'd be peace because in an environment, the grounds were beautiful, the roses were amazing, uh, the trees, the places that we went to. So um, it, it wasn't a sad place to be because I felt we were, we were doing something that was honourable uh, and looking after people. So I think there are le lessons learned, many, but um, enjoy the life you have, make the most of it, I think. And, and share it share it willingly and openly with others, I suppose. I think the listener, if they're hearing you for the first time now, would well and truly know that you are a very accomplished public speaker. Uh, I love hearing you in a very in a live um, uh, in a live setting when I have had the opportunity to. And it's it's a really important leadership skill, um, and I, I admire how you do it. I just wanted to know. What experiences have shaped you in your public speaking journey or what has helped you? Uh, yeah, people often ask me this. I'm trying to work it out. Um, I think but even, look, I probably had a little bit of an advantage um, is that I studied languages. Uh, and so you, you learn from an early point when you're studying French and German and whatever it was, Indonesian, Russian, because you do have to speak it out loud. And speaking out loud in a foreign language uh, is a good way of testing yourself. Now, not everybody is going to do that. So, look, I think there's a few things around if you're asked to public speak is uh, a, a have a topic that you're really familiar with. A lot of people, when they worry about public speaking, it's confidence and the nerves start and they don't have the confidence. So I think where does a lack of confidence come from? Lack of confidence probably comes from fear. Oh, fear, are they going to laugh at me? Fear that I don't know what I'm talking about. Fear that I'm going to express it well. So I think what can you do? to allay that fear so allaying the fear would be talk about something that you're really familiar with talk about something that you're passionate about because if you're passionate about it actually that will come through um i always say to people um if you speak from the heart you speak your truth and i always think about that whenever i speak if i speak from here um it, it seems to resonate because you're speaking you're speaking something that's true to you so i think believe in what you're talking about and make it yours so don't look at somebody else's public speaking style and think, oh, they're amazing, I need to be like them. It's too hard to spend time being like somebody else. So find what public speaking style works for you and as time will go on, you'll shape that more and more. So if you make it your own, it makes the words easier. But, you know, take it back, pra practice, 
practice. So if you're going to, you know, give a, give a presentation, you know, focus on, don't try and cram everything in. Focus maybe three or four key points. I want to do this. I want to do this. You know, start, you know, strong opening, cover that message, that message, that message, and then, a, you know, a good positive wrap up. If you're trying to cram too many things in, that will make you a bit nervous. And also it's confusing for the listeners. Practice, practice, practice. Practice in front of the mirror, practice in front of your family, practice in front of the dog or the cat. Um, they can be a bit critical, but, you know, at least you're practicing in front of someone. And you get that sense of, um, well, whether it's the dog or the cat or family member, of how people react. Okay, so then you can say, oh, that, oh the way I said that, oh, that, that, seemed to, that seemed to resonate. I've got a good body language movement. Um, so I think, you know, really trying to find – Find a style that works uh, for you and start small. So in terms of public speaking, uh, you're not going to go, if you've never public spoken in public before, maybe not speak in front of 500 people as your first <laughs> as your first gig. So it might be something as simple in at work in a team meeting, okay, um, and take five minutes to say, oh, hey, I want to practice, I want to talk about something and practice. So you're with people that you know, it's a safe space, um, and practice that. And then maybe it might be in something a little bit bigger, then it might be in a lunchtime talk. So start small in a safe space and build your confidence. Uh, and the more you do it, trust me, the more you do it, the easier it becomes. Um, have good notes uh, and, you know, work on that. Try not to read completely, but start with that. And then as you become more confident and you get your build your story, uh, you'll be able to speak a lot more naturally. Does that make sense? Is that a absolutely, absolutely, really good actionable actionable advice? And I know when we were in the audience at Leadership WA in the Rising program, uh, listening to your your experiences, there were a few things that I just wanted to unpack as well that have already been sort of mentioned. And one of them is really topical around mental health and looking after yourself when. I think as leaders, we're often at service of our team, of the community, putting others before yourself. But there is the importance of your own oxygen mask. And uh, I'll let you speak on that further, but it's an important one. Yeah, look, absolutely. And it's, um, I, I think, particularly the last two or three years of COVID, uh, a lot of the leaders I, I speak to have just been running hard, um, as well as looking after you know, your, your, your family and yourself, you've got your business, you've got your staff, you've got stakeholders, there's been a heck of a lot of pressures on any on everyone. And one of our coaches said to me one day, because I, I, I run pretty hard, uh, but it's because I love what I do. So that's both a, a positive and a negative. It could be, be a bit of a, a catch-22 situation. And one of my coaches said, Dom, it's really important that you've got to find your oxygen and you've got to find something that puts air back in and yes you know, the classic case you know that the you're on the plane and something happens in the oxygen mask and they say put your own oxygen mask on first before you put it onto your child the next person because if you don't look after yourself you can't look after others it's a really really good analogy and I think for all of us and I will every now and then when I start to feel a bit run down or tired and it does happen I'll stop and I'll think okay how can I get some oxygen uh, that's metaphorical. So what will put fuel back in my tank, whatever you want to use. So for me, you know, in the previous year, it was riding, getting on my bike. And, and you know, when I was training by myself, a beautiful thing about Perth is you're only ever about a metre and a half away from the river, from the Derbal Yerrigan, and you've got that beside you. Um, and I could just breathe and be and, and enjoy that time. For other people, it might be art. For other people, it might be reading a book. It might be doing a puzzle. It might be listening to a podcast, you know, by the famous I did, you know. It could be a podcast. It could be a whole heap of things. It could be just stopping. It could be travel. It's really, really important for leaders to recognise that we're not superhumans um, and we do need to find some, some space and some option because there's only so long any of us can run or run or, or run on empty and eventually something's going to give and what will either give will be you and your health or your mental health or it might be your business or it might be the people around you. So I think it's a really good uh, thing to do is to recognise, you know, I'm, st I'm starting to feel this. Do something about it before it's too, before it's too late, I suppose. 
So whatever I would say to anyone, find out what it is that puts a bit of, uh, gives you a bit of energy or, 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 or lets you stop and rest. Somebody said to me, well, you can have the fastest, a bright red Ferrari sports car, the best on the planet. It's not going to go anywhere if you don't put fuel in it. So find your fuel, I suppose, is another way of looking at it. And, and just also say from the mental health perspective, um, you know, ask for help. It is okay. In fact, you should ask for help. Asking for help if you're struggling with mental health or stress or anxiety or whatever it happens to be, however you want to define it, um, asking for help is the best thing you can do. And, you know, Leadership WA, we talk about courageous leadership. Um, I think the person that asks for help rather than just struggling along until they burn out, the person who asks for help is far more courageous than the person who you know, who, who, who struggles on to, to, you know, the point of no return. Just one more as well that really resonated was if you have the capacity, you have the responsibility is one that mm. um, even at a small scale or a large scale has, it's a daily reminder. Absolutely. That's, that's one of my personal mantras uh, that I heard sort of about 15 years ago and it stayed with me. A lot of people, uh, when we talk about leadership, oh, and they're embarrassed to call themselves a leader. Um, they say, well, I don't have the name tag that says CEO or, or, or general manager or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, I, I really strongly believe you don't need the title to be a leader. You don't need to be the head of an organisation of a 1,000 people uh, to be a leader or a big business. Everyone has the capacity to be a leader and everyone has the capacity to impact upon others. And those other phrases, if you have the capacity, you have the responsibility. So if you think about that, yeah, you could be the leader of a big organisation and your responsibility is to set the vision and to create an environment where people can shine um, and achieve those goals, yes. But all of us have got the capacity to impact upon other people. And that might be just as simple as walking down the street and you see someone, a complete stranger who's just not smiling and you say, hi, or you go, that's a great tie or fantastic dress. Um, and you see people go, I mean, sometimes they think I'm a bit strange, but that's okay. But you can see them go, oh, and it just lifts them just for a moment. Or in a work environment, maybe somebody's done something great. So as well as saying, hey, well done, you know, you send an email to them and you CC your boss, their boss so that their boss has seen it. If you have the capacity to impact upon someone, you have the responsibility. Responsibility is not linked to money or title or position or power. Every single person can make a difference in someone else's life. The one day that you say hi to someone in the corridor, it'll be the day that they were thinking about self-harm and because someone paid them attention, it just lifts them a little bit. Um, you know, the, the one time that you acknowledge somebody's achievements, uh, it might lift them up. So I think if you have the capacity, you have the responsibility, something any of us can do, it's understanding what your capacity is. could be something huge. It could be something tiny. So for me, doing the ride for youth, you know, I never thought I could ride 700Ks, but I could do it and I could end up in a position to raise some money that can help other people. Uh, and so I suppose that that's one example, but it could be just as I said, simple as saying, "Hey, awesome shirt, looks fantastic on you," and then off you go. You might never see that person again, but gosh, you could make a difference to their day. Happy fifth anniversary for five years as CEO at Leadership WA, uh, a very impactful organisation in Western Australia. I think we've talked about the different steps in your journey so far and places you've you've uh, immersed in. But this must be one that is so rewarding to you. I want to know what it means to you to be the leader of an organisation that develops and supports leaders in our state. Oh, well, yeah, look, I, I am in this role, gosh, I am in my happy place. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in this privileged, privileged position where I get to help I have a team, amazing team, and my role in leading that team is that you get the, the chance to help people find and exceed their leadership responsibility, find and exceed their leadership capacity. What's their potential? What the, can they do with it? Um, and that is just fantastic. So the stories we hear, the people we meet, uh, the environment that we create that allows leaders and potential leaders at all sorts of levels to find themselves and to find their leadership strength, that is just brilliant. 
And then the other part of what we do is it just doesn't end once you graduate from our program. So people become alumni and we look to galvanise those alumni for social impact that might be going on to a not-for-profit board or providing some strategic planning advice um, and using their skills, what's in their toolkit, to help others. Uh, and that's sort of part of, uh, of what we do at Leadership WA. It's about creating a stronger state uh, and a better, better WA for our community. There are all these amazing organisations out there in the not-for-profit space uh, who are doing wonderful things for some of the most marginalised or vulnerable or disadvantaged people. It might be around domestic violence. It might be around homelessness. It might be about accessibility to, to sport, uh, people with disability. Um, and there are organisations doing great things, but they do need help. So, you know, maybe two hours of your time, that's absolutely priceless for a small not-for-profit who are needing some help. So not only do I get to help be part of sort of shaping leadership and leadership thinking from people as individuals, but I get them to start thinking about, well, hang on, what could my footprint be? How could I use all of this and make a broader impact? So uh, it's uh, a lot of my friends say, wow, yep, this is the perfect job for you. So I'm very much in my happy place. It, uh, it does make me uh, rise to the balls of my feet when I talk about it because it is exciting. And, and the beautiful thing is, we bring together a really diverse mix of people on our program. So we bring together people from not-for-profit sector, private sector, public sector, um, diverse sort of genders, cultures, lived experience, uh, life experience, uh, and we bring together this amazing sort of melting pot of diverse people who can learn from each other. So we create experiences where they can learn, but as you know, it's the people in the room that we bring together, we hand-select them, and people who will push each other, pull each other, learn from each other. Um, and the cool thing for me is every year I get to learn as well. So every year, um, you know, I don't, I don't need to read a lot of books and listen to other podcasts because I'm surrounded by each year the next generation of existing or potential leaders. So uh, my, cup, my cup is very, very full on that count. So it's a great place to be. It's been transformative uh, individually or personally and uh, for the listener to know that there are a rising program and also a uh, signature leadership program as well as a leadability course, many opportunities. So there'll be um, a link in the show notes to really promote what Leadership WA do. And I'm sure you get asked this question a lot, potentially, but I want to know what is your definition of leadership? Oh, wow. Look, I think lead leadership can be so many things and so many people at different times. But, I mean, I think really ultimately, ultimately I think it's, it's, about, it's about setting a vision and the goals to achieve that vision. Then I think it's about creating the environment where people can achieve those goals. And that environment is your facilities, your resource, your culture. Create an environment where your team can achieve those goals and then the next thing, get out of their way. You know, it's no point being the leader who is in everything, who is striving forward and running forward and doing all these amazing things, and all of a sudden you look behind you and there's nobody there. You know, you're leading a team of one, which is you. So I think leadership is about people. Create the vision, create the environment, get the right people, support them and nurture them and let them do their thing. You know, when I look at my... And it's creating space for others to step in as well. A leader does not have to know everything, be everything, have all the technical knowledge. Nobody can do that. Um, so it's surrounding yourself with really great people and then letting them get on with it. I've got members in my team who are far more knowledgeable than I am, and that's brilliant. Um, look, I think, gosh, yeah, uh, uh, that's a whole other podcast on the definition of leadership, but I, I think you've got to find not only the style that works for you, but also the style that works for the people that you're working with. Uh, what's the situation? What's happening? Uh, everybody talks in the last few years about, you know, adaptive leadership and being able to pivot or twirl uh, and being able to move. So I think contemporary leaders nowadays, there's a lot of complexity. Um, and so the ability to, you know, scan and change and adapt is really, really important. But at the end of the day, um, for me, it's about people. You know, you're about lead, you're leading people to achieve good things. So, I'm a big believer in um, the humanity of leadership. You're leading humans. That's a very inelegant phrase, but human people are humans. Lead with humanity and authenticity. Um, 
and 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 trust and and that's how you can achieve achieve wonderful things i think that's my philosophy i know i don't always get it right but that's what i'm aiming aiming to do and when i see the sort of things that the leadership wa team achieve and i see the program participants who come through on our signature program our rising program leadability aspiring all the experiences that we create um you know you're seeing people who are building putting more into their toolkit understanding themselves better believing themselves better and just becoming uh leaders who can make a difference we have a wonderful ripple effect in what we do uh so we'll just we'll just and you've experienced this we'll just open the door maybe encourage you to walk through it sometimes we might shove you through it sometimes we might make you a bit uncomfortable in a safe space sometimes we'll just sow a seed um we'll do that for you but it, then it's up to you and our participants to take that and 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 make something with it and that's the beautiful thing because I've over five years the number of stories that I've seen and the people that I've seen us and the growth um, of the people that are coming through our programs is just extraordinary and you know and now we've got over eleven hundred alumni now and they are doing amazing things across the state. Speaking of people, Don, who has inspired your journey, or have you had any important figureheads across the the span? Oh, it's, it's always a hard question to. I'm I'm a great observer, okay. So I'll I'll observe things and everything. Like I said, you know, right from the word go, from my parents observing my my parents in a medical environment and looking at the level of care, uh, you know, and the dedication. Some of the athletes that I would see, I saw over the years. So it wouldn't be a particular famous person, but just people that I've been so blessed to interact with over my life. You know, the athletes who incredible dedication and skill and then uh and resilience and 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 bouncing back over the years uh the people that the people that i've seen suddenly believed in themselves a lot more than they ever could before um so so yeah i'm not i'm not going to give you that answer on who's my most inspirational leader uh there's there's so many people look in recent times um you know somebody like jacinda adern who you know, she showed that you could lead with compassion. You could lead a country, but you could still be a human being, uh, you know, while you do it. But by the, by the same token, look, here's a good example, somebody who's inspired me. So we had, we were in our leadability course. It's a short course for people with disability or people working in the sector. And we had somebody go through last year. And um, he he works for a, um, a, a disability uh, so working enterprise, or he has a he has a, a, a mild disability. Uh, he works for them. He came and did our course. Anyway, one day I got a phone, like an email from his CEO saying, "Oh, Dom, just want to let you know, I've just come back from Canberra with um, his name was Sam, was Sam, and Sam was sitting at a round table in Canberra with Bill Shorten talking about the NDIS and what impact that was having on people with disability. And on the plane on the way back, Sam said." I would not have had the confidence to go and sit at that table in Parliament House if I hadn't done this leadability course and learnt what I could do. That's the sort of person that inspires me. That must have made you feel amazing. Oh man, I'm still I'm getting goosebumps when I think about it because just the <clears throat> the opportunity to open a door for others um is is a wonderful thing so where do i get i get my inspiration from stories like that i get inspiration from people from from everyday things the most bizarre things uh uh you know watching a watching a duck you know scooting its way across the i'll find something in that and that's the absolute joy in doing that so and i i would encourage people so just to look, you will find inspiration in many, many places, uh, and it's not always in the obvious places, not always in the <clears throat> the autobiography of a famous leader or something. Um, find, find the joy in looking around, and, and a lot of it is from the people just around you. I almost don't need to ask the next question because there's so much inspiration around us, but has there been a book in particular, or uh, I know not podcast because this, this is going to be the best podcast, but... Uh, has there been anything that you would recommend? Look, I think um, I, I, I tend to – I look at a lot of the McKinsey and the Harvard readings that pop up because they're quite contemporary and um, so that's worth subscribing to a few of those things. So that for, for me it's sort of short snippets um, and snapshots of, of, of what's going on. Um, I think um, 
I've got to be honest. A lot of my reading is 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 reading uh, reading a bit of rubbish in my downtime. So that gives me a little. That's a little bit of my oxygen. I think the thing what I would recommend for people is um, it, whether it's a book or a podcast or somebody speaking. Um, just what I would recommend is whatever it is, listen deeply and think deeply. And so, if something inspires you. Ask why. What was it that, you know, gave me goosebumps? What was it that inspires and what does that mean for me? And similarly, if something triggers you um, and you go, oh, I feel a bit uncomfortable with that, um, ask yourself why. So no matter, I think that's where the, 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 huge, the, the real learning comes in if you uh, listen, listen really, really deeply and think, okay, what am I going to do with that? Book, podcast, speaker, casual conversation there's always something to learn i just want to add a question on that one dom is how do you create the space to think deeply because i know we live in this world where our attention is uh, all over the place scattered a little bit sometimes there's many competing and conflicting things pulling our attention away so what has helped for you or advice you would give on creating that space Mm. look it's a bit of discipline Look, there's even um, even look, my EA is fantastic. She blocks out time in my diary, and it's called Dom time. <laughs> so it's time for me. I can choose what I want to do with that, but there's no meetings. There's nothing else that happens. So, you know, during the working day, block out time in your diary. Go for a walk at lunchtime. I've just taken up swimming, um, and so doing laps following that black line is an amazing time for me to um, unwind and and create some space. I think the key thing is um, if you don't create the space, no one else will. If you're in, you know, any kind of role and, and, and you get things done and you're a doer and you're going to, people will always find ways to fill your space for you. Nobody's going to go, oh, I'm just going to step back and let you do. So you need to be the one, I guess, to take control and to create some space. And space could be, it could be just taking three minutes to do some breathing some deep breathing and, you know, reset, you know, four in, four out. It could be that. It could be going for a bike ride at lunchtime or it could be going and playing some music or listening to a podcast. A lot of people listen to podcasts on the way home from work. So I think, again, creating space, it is vitally important because that creating space is the putting the fuel back in the tank Um, and it also will give you clarity. I'm too busy. I'm too busy to stop. I'm too busy to rest. It's like, no, you're never too busy because if you take that time, you'll end up being more productive. But it's, uh, I guess that's the one thing, probably the responsibility is on your shoulders. You've got to, and, it, and I'll ch- challenge the words, it's not find the space, it's make the space. Because if you try and find it, you're always going to keep looking. You've got the one that's going to take control and you've got to make the space and honour it. And the other thing as well, I think, is is tell other people that that's what you're doing. Because in leadership, you've got to, and I'm not always good at this, uh, you've got to try and role model the good behaviours. So if I'm not creating space, if I'm not taking a break, if I'm not listening deeply, how can I expect anybody else around me to do the same? So I think it's up to... Uh, each individual to, to to take control. Dom, I'm very mindful of your time. And also my head is starting to hurt from nodding it so much <laughs> in agreement. <laughs> um, the, the final thing I want to ask is, do you have any, any message you'd love to leave to the, the listener as we wrap up? Um, gosh, look, I think, you know, in the role that I've been in and everybody asks me, you know, what makes a good leader? How can I be one? Uh, how do I get to do what you're doing? And I just think the, the one thing I really want everyone to know is that anyone can be a leader. You don't need a fancy title. You don't need an office. You don't have to have a giant business. Anyone, every single person is or has the potential to be a leader. Um, and I think the way that you can do that is be mindful of your impact upon others, big or small, and then use that impact to enable them. Every single person on this planet in one way or another has the capacity to do that. So I think um, I would say believe that anyone can be in a leadership role. Part of that is understanding yourself uh, and, and a bit of self-belief as well. Um, you can believe in yourself without being arrogant. 
uh, but a bit of self-belief. If you believe in yourself, others will as well. So I guess that's that's one message I'd, I'd like to I'd like to leave, and um, and I really appreciate the chance to have a chat. It's been a very good reflective journey for me as well to uh, to to have a have a chat with you this morning. Thank you so so much, and I'm just one of a multitude of people who have been um, impacted by just yourself or Leadership WA. So uh, deeply appreciative. Wish you all the best for the next rides in your journey and uh, or dragon boat races and and other. Um, awesome things you'll get up to no doubt so thank you so much all right take care and thank you so much really appreciated the chat and there we have it that was a lot of fun thank you so much for listening as a community cultivated independent podcast your support means the world so we can keep these important conversations flowing taking wallyl up to the world and the world to wallyl up until next time Keep smiling, keep scoring.